tonight we're in Revelation chapter 20, 21 and 22. We have a few verses to read through. The words should be on the screen in front of you if you're not in the app. Um, so you can follow along. Uh, that being said, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Revelation 20, starting in verse 1 to 3, verse 7 and verse 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And when the thousand years had ended or are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now in verse, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, of, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated before the throne, seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And now in chapter 22, verse 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord God, we're thankful to be here tonight, and we, we love you, we honor you, and we again welcome you in this place, and um, thank you for bringing us here, thank you for fellowship, thank you for granting us just the opportunity to hear your word and to let it soak into us, Lord, and change us, and I pray that you'd speak through Taylor, speak to each one of us, convict us, and make us more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank y'all. Okay. Many of you know that I am reading my Desert Island book, my favorite book other than the Bible, The Lord of the Rings, with my son, my eldest, Seth, Robert Entz. And we are, we're pretty early on. We're kind of closing in on the near end of the fellowship, the first third of the book. And or the first of three books that comprise the Lord of the Rings. And we're right at the gates, or really at the wall, if you've read it, of Moria, called the Mines of Moria. And you can almost hear, if you've seen the movie, Gandalf say, 
the dwell, there the, uh, the, the dwarves delved too greedily and too deep. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful place of uh, a huge mine where the dwarves who love stone and rock and working underground and jewels carved out this massive dwarf city, this kingdom, but they got greedy and they, they dug in places that they shouldn't have and they unearthed ancient evils there. And so actually the fellowship of which the ring bearer Frodo is one, pass through Karadras, the, the red horn gate and the mountain. They try to pass over the mountains and they're thwarted so they have to go through the mountains. They have to go through the mines of Moria and there's a lot of foreboding that we've, that we've read about up to this point, Seth and I, and he doesn't know what's coming, uh, but I do, but I do. And it's, it's not, and it's not good. It's, uh, it's pretty dark stuff. And, but I tell you what, I've read the whole book many, many times, and I've seen the movies, and I know, I know how it ends. In the, in, the Greek, in the Greek way of speaking, this book is a comedy. It ends well. And so I know what happens, and the fact that I know what happens helps me as we journey through the minds to not get totally depressed and weighed down. I know, I know how it all ends, even though it's really, really dark. Um, and really, and so even if I were to take it a step farther, if I were a character in Middle Earth, in the fellowship, passing through the mines, and some of this stuff was happening to me, to me or to my fellowship, uh, even there, and especially there, if I knew the end, I would actually be even more encouraged and heartened and hopeful. And that's really a picture of why, again, to, to kind of come back to the book of Revelation, to come back to the series that we're finishing tonight, um, the seventh out of seven on the kingdom of God. And we started sort of with repentance, but then in Genesis, and we've walked our way pretty quickly uh, in six sermons through cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation uh, and looking at the kingdom of God and what it means and how it's brought to us in Christ and how we're brought into it in Christ. Um, but John, we finish in Revelation tonight with the last three chapters of the Bible. He, uh, he wrote the book of Revelation again to Christians, part of God's kingdom through the blood of Christ shed for them, um, who were really living a life of extreme persecution and trial for their faith. And they were in the minds of Moria, as it were, and he wrote, he wrote to them to show them this is how it ends. This is how it ends, with Christ finishing off evil, vanquishing the foe, and reigning. And not only is he going to reign one day, but as, we're gonna, as we've talked about and as we will talk about again, he, he reigns now. And so it gave Christians a lot of hope um, because they knew that this is how it's going to finish. And it should give us a lot of hope too. Um, so Nathaniel read to us pieces from the last three chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20, 21, and 22. Let me take us briefly back to the first part of the Bible. We sort of started this series in Genesis. Let me go back there briefly uh, because these last chapters speak to the first chapters. Uh, in, in many good, especially ancient books, the beginning and the end of the book would speak to each other. And it's no, it's no different here. Um, we start out with God. We all know how the Bible starts. We all know how God chose to give us his special revelation and how he, how he, what he chose to start with, and that's creation. Um, God chose to start not all things off because he's always existed, but he spoke things into being. So Genesis 1 and 2 give us an account of God making all things and he making all things good. 
And, um, and then, so what, he made all things, but then he, he made, at the end of those six days, he rested on the seventh, he made us. He made humanity. And he made humanity alone in his image. And he made male and female, man and woman in his image to complement one another and to image God who is one but three, three persons. Um, and so he made us in his image and he set, all, he set all things under our feet. Psalm 8 talks about that as a poem. It's an amazing thing. Who are we that you should give us dominion over all of your creation, right? Um, so we were made to reign. We were made to rule. Um, but we weren't just made to reign and rule. The next chapter, Genesis 2, is an intimate portrait of creation and it zooms in on uh, man not finding a helper fit for him. And so God makes woman and he brings the woman to the man like a father walking his daughter down the aisle. And there's this intimate picture of not only are we made to reign, not only are we made to be kings and queens and to have dominion over creation and to cultivate the potential of all that God made for us. And we feel that. We know that. And there's a sense in which we know that we were made for so much more than we're living for. There's that sense of loss and that sense of not reaching our potential that we all feel in our souls and in our bones. Um, but also we're made to, to love one another, to uh, give ourselves for one another, to be naked and unashamed, to be vulnerable and transparent, to trust and to be trusted with one another and with God, to be in perfect, trusting, open, honest, soul-satisfying relationship. Um, and we also know that because of what happens next, chapter 3 of Genesis, we don't attain to that. We know that we're made for that. Every country song is about that, and every country song is about how that goes wrong, right? And every, every good song almost is about how that goes wrong. Every good poem is about love unrequited, love lost, whatever, someone cheating on you. And so the third chapter of the Bible with amazing celerity, with amazing speed, with astonishing speed, we turn from God. Our forebears um, from whom we come uh, and through whom we inherit this severance from God and this curse and death itself. They rebel against God. And um, what you have in chapter three, three is the serpent defeating, essentially the serpent defeating man, robbing us of our dominion. And what is the first thing that happens to man and woman when they sin against God? What do they do? Shame. They hide. They hide from God. Fear of God, fear of their maker, who is their good king and their intimate and who would walk with them in the cool of the day and made them for soul-satisfying relationship. Fear of God enters their hearts and they have severed themselves from him and they're all of a sudden in an adverse relationship with God, but also with each other. They hide from each other. They start pointing the finger and blaming. Have you ever done that? I've never done that with my wife. I don't know what you're talking about. Are you kidding me? Every, a lot of times when we argue, we're like, Genesis 3, we'll say that out loud. Like nothing, what has changed? Nothing new under the sun. Um, but so they hide from God, their maker, they hide from each other, and they hide from themselves. They cover themselves, their shame, um, they cover themselves inadequately. We cannot cover our shame. We can't do it. We're hiding from ourselves, from God, and from each other. But what, we know this, okay? We, we know we were made for these things. We know we've lost these things. We're aware of this. Um, but we're also aware of the promise that's embedded in the middle of that curse, right? We've talked about it. In the middle of that curse, God could have just abandoned them and said, I'm starting project B, I'm starting over. He didn't do that. In, he comes, he enters into the middle of the curse and he steps into it with a promise. It's the first whisper 
of what will become a shout in the prophets, a trumpet in the prophets, that there is going to come one from the woman, a seed from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, right? And um, what we see in Revelation 20 and what we know is that Jesus is that man, okay? The very instrument through which he lays his life down on the cross, his heel is crushed. With that very heel, he crushes the head of the serpent. Through death on a cross, he takes our place and buries the curse for us, right? Um, And endures hell for us and takes the white-hot wrath of God as our shield so that we can go free and be saved and start things over. Um, So he fulfills that. In Revelation 20, you get a picture of what Jesus has already begun, completed. And what you get is, um, you get a a perfect finish in the Bible. And a picture of the kingdom, but of even more than the kingdom. Um, So in Revelation 20, like Nathaniel read, he read about, not in Genesis 3, you have the serpent defeating man. But in Revelation 20, you have a man, the second man. You know, Adam, Adam, it it just means man in Hebrew. So Jesus is called the second man. He's a second type of man. There's only two types of men and women in the world. Fallen, opposed to God, that's how we're born, because of Adam. And then the second man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through faith in whom we are reborn and brought back into relationship with God. Not through good works, through his blood shed for us, through his life lived for us, through his resurrection and ascension. And and so we have the man... Not, not ser- the serpent defeating the man, but the reversal of that. Okay, so the third chapter in the Bible, we have the serpent defeating the man. The third, the last chapter in the Bible, we have man defeating the serpent. Okay, and we're going to come back to this in a second. But Jesus Christ puts Satan away for a while. He seals him up so that he can no longer deceive the nations. We'll come back to that. And then he reigns. He is reigning. And then he releases Satan, Satan excuse me, this is where the, the term, the millennium, comes from. We'll, go, we'll come back to this briefly at the end. Um, he releases Satan in his providence, though he reigns and though he has all authority for a time because of his sovereignty and his plan. But then he quickly, if you paid attention to what Nathaniel read in verses 7 through 10 of Revelation 20, he quickly does away with him. Satan is no match. He lets him go. He lets him have his last heyday. And then he lets Satan run amok and cause trouble. And then he, with the one word, with the word of his mouth, he vanquishes Satan once and for all. He finishes what he started at the cross and he puts him into the fire that is never quenched. Him and his demons and all those who, who rebel against the living God. But he defeats the serpent. Um, so in the, third, in the third chapter of the Bible, uh, the serpent defeats man. In the third to last chapter of the Bible, the man defeats the serpent or the dragon, Satan. Um, in the, again, going backwards, um, so, so, excuse me, going forwards, what you have next after Revelation 20, after the defeat of the serpent, is you have a wedding. You have a bride. And it's mentioned a couple chapters earlier in Revelation, the wedding feast of the Lamb. But in Revelation 21, what do you have coming out of heaven? The New Jerusalem, which is called the bride. There's a lot of meaning layered into this, but... Um, what is happening is that God is coming to be with his people. We are his bride. The church is not a building. We say it all the time. We're about to really start feeling that more as we start to move into house church, right? It's easy to remember when you don't have a beautiful church building. Um, The church is the bride of Christ, the redeemed 
of the Lord, who trust in him, who look to him, who are being made into a dwelling for him to live in. If you look to Christ and are saved through his work, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he lives in you by his spirit. You are a temple of the living God. And we together are being like living stones, like Peter says, built together for a place for God to live in. And we're getting taste of the intimacy that we are one day going to we're going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant one day. We'll see him face to face. We'll be made like him. And the intimacy that we're reacquainted with, our soul satisfaction will be unending and perfect and not blemished by our sin. So what do we have in the second to last chapter of the Bible? We have a bride. We have a wedding. That's the second to last chapter of the Bible. What do we have in the second chapter of the Bible? Genesis 2. We have a wedding. We have a bride. So do you see um, the third chapter of the Bible? We have serpent defeating man. The third to last chapter of the Bible, we have man defeating the serpent. Okay? The second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, we have a wedding and a bride. The second chapter of the Bible, we have a wedding and a bride, a man and a woman. So that soul satisfaction that we were made for that was broken, it's, it's, it's consummated. It's been inaugurated already. It's, it's, it's been, it started with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns and he's bringing us to himself, but he's going to finish the work one day. And that's in the second to last chapter of the Bible. You see the reflectiveness? And then finally, how does the Bible end? Like I said last week, our salvation is a huge part of what God came to do. But the, what Christ came to do is more than um, my own personal salvation and redemption. It is not less than, thank God. It is more than. That is woven into an even grander story of God not giving up on his creation. And so Revelation 22 is about the recreation of all things. God finishes what he started and he remakes the heavens and the earth and he brings heaven down and he will be with us forever. And he will reign with us and he will make all things new. He said, behold, I am making all things new. It is done. Um, and so what we have in Revelation 22, the final chapter is the recreation of all things. It means that all things matter. God doesn't give up on his creation. And in Christ, all things will be remade. And what do we have in the first chapter of the Bible? We have the creation. So we have creation. In the last chapter, we have recreation. Okay, and then Genesis 2, we have the wedding. And then the second to last chapter of the Bible, we have a wedding. And then the third chapter of the Bible, we have the serpent defeating man. And then in the third to last chapter of the Bible, we have man defeating the serpent. So why do I belabor this? One, because it's there. But two, because it is so, what, there are so many things this tells us. It is such an encouraging thing, just the structure of the scriptures. Here are a couple. One is, it's a reminder that though there were about 40 different authors writing the Bible over about a 1,500 year period, there was one author. There is one author of the scriptures. This is the very breath of God spoken to us to bring us to Jesus Christ and to tell us how to live and who to run to and what he looks like and what he does and how he acts. And it's a reminder that God has been, has authored the scriptures. The end reflects the beginning. There's this perfect choreography. And he's even, he's not sidetracked by evil and sin. He's using those things, as, as Caroline said about the cross when she was sitting here during our children's time. He uses even those things for the most glorious things. covid not, not an accident, not something that surprised God, something God is sovereignly orchestrating and using, though he's not the author of evil. He's using it. He's choreographed it. He's got it under control. He's taking us somewhere. 
So not only does it remind us that the Bible is from God and his perfect word, it also reminds us, if we think about what the Bible is, the Bible is the perfect history book. It's the perfect account of, of all of human history, of God's design to not only make a people for himself to reign over his creation, but to make a bride for his son. And that bride estranged herself. And can I say it? She sold herself out. She sold herself out to many lovers, and we've done that. But it's about him going to infinite cost and infinite length to get us back, to rescue us, um, to, uh, to buy with the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, a bride for his son. And, um, and so it's a reminder that God is working all things to their appointed ends for the good of those who love Jesus and are called according to his purpose, right? At the center of it all, though, and this is where I want to sort of, sort of finish with this thought and then, hang on, I've got some application. I've got some application at the end. I want to spend some time just applying it and then, and then we'll, we'll continue to worship. But um, at the end, at Revelation 22, with this recreation, there's this picture. If you look at verses 1 through 3 of Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, there's this beautiful picture of the son, Jesus Christ, reigning on the same throne with his father. And it's a city. A guy wrote a book called Garden City. And it's tracing the trajectory of world history and of the scriptures. Things start in a garden and they finish in a city. And that's, I mean, look at the trajectory of world history, by the way. The 21st century is the first century of the city. For the first time in the past decade, more people live in the city than in the country ever in the history of, human, of, of humanity. We are heading into, the past two centuries have been the century of the nation state. We are now in the century of the city. It's one reason that we are here. It's one reason that we as Christians don't need, have a country house, go out to the country. It's wonderful. I love doing that to recharge. I'm going to do that some in Thanksgiving. But Christians, we need to be in the city where the people are because God, as much as he loves plants, he loves people more. He laid his life down for us. He shed his blood for us. This is where things are headed. This is where people are. This is where evil and darkness is. This is where the light needs to be. This is where the gospel needs to be proclaimed. So stay here. Let's stay here in the city and let's worship the Lord and let's be discipled and let's proclaim the gospel and let's make disciples. Okay? Um, so that's where things are headed. And it's in this beautiful city and new creation, um, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And at the center of it is Jesus seated with his father on the throne. That's, that's what does the city look like? How does it operate? What's its nerve center? God reigning. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. You don't need to lock your doors. There's no evil. Everything's beautiful inside and out. There's total satisfaction. Um, every, even your own heart's desires are perfect and pure. And we are completely satisfied in the Lord. And there's, there's love and there's this remade creation. It's amazing. From the throne, though, flows this, this river, and it's called the river of life, and it kind of cuts down the center of the city. It's like a San Antonio, but better. It's like a river walk, um, and here's the curious thing. In verse 3, I think it is, of Revelation 22, it says that, and this has always struck me as strange, it says that there's a tree on either side of the river. Now, why is that weird? It doesn't, because it doesn't say trees. It said there's a tree of life. Um, on either side of this river of life that proceeds from the throne of God where Christ is seated with his Father. It's one tree. 
but it's on both sides of the river. And from this tree come, uh, uh, grow leaves, and from those leaves, there are 12 different types of fruit, and those leaves provide the healing of the nations, of the nations. The, the restoration of all creation comes from this tree, but why is it on both sides of the river? That's really strange. Why not trees? Well, um, this isn't me. I didn't, I didn't have this realization, but it's true nonetheless, and you may have heard it. In Luke, who also wrote Acts, yeah, we've been in Acts for a while, so good on you. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, so Acts is like Luke part two, okay? So if, you read, if you're reading the, through the Gospels, read, you might try this, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and then come back to John, all right? But um, Luke always talks about the cross, the Roman cross of Christ on which he died and secured our salvation and shed his blood in our place. He always talks about it as that, the cross. In Acts, which he also wrote, he never uses that word. Three times he uses the word twice a tree and once the tree. What's he doing? It's the same cross, but what has happened? What are the apostles proclaiming? They get it now. They left dejected at the cross. They thought it was all over. We thought this man was the Messiah, Luke 24. We thought he was a prophet full of word and power. Every, the wheels have completely come off. COVID times a zillion. Cosmic train wreck. They're just stumbling around. Little do they know this is God's plan to save everything, to defeat and vanquish sin, Satan, hell, the white hot wrath of God justly applied against us, but Jesus took it in our place. He started something completely new. What is Luke saying? In the book of Acts, they get that the cross, see, a tree is alive. A cross is just a dead piece of wood that's a torture instrument. A tree is alive, it's a living thing, and it produces strength, it's strong, it's beautiful, it gives life. What, what there's, there's a lot of theology packed into those three uses of the tree. What Luke is saying is that with this instrument of death, Jesus has made the only portal into life the only portal into life and so you know there's really no way of proving it but I think that it's a decent conjecture to say that at the center of this new creation is going to be this tree you know whether it's a cross or not I don't know but this tree this thing that our Lord took upon himself where he took death itself and through death brought us life by taking upon himself the curse that Adam and Eve invited into our world and that broke creation. And through that reversal, he's, through that cross, through that tree, he's bringing life from death. And that's at the center of all things. Um, and from the, the leaves of that tree come the healing of the nations, right? So let's, okay, I told you I'd, I'd close, but then now we got just some four takeaways, okay? Just four takeaways and then we'll continue to worship after I make it just a couple announcements. The first takeaway is this. God has perfectly choreographed. Think about the, I didn't want to use the term. I've used it before, sorry. The three chapters in the Bible that start in Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, 3, and then how those are reflected out in the last three chapters of the Bible. It's called a chiasm, right? It's a, it's a Hebrew literary thing. It's a, it's a literary mirroring. So God is using this to show us, I'm in control. Next time you doubt that, 
Look at the cross. Look at the cross. The cross shows us God is in control even of evil and sin. He's going to bring good through it for us, for those who look to Jesus. He's perfectly choreographed all of human history, even the bad stuff and the evil. So what does that mean for us? It means that in the middle of COVID and this disaster, it's been, Robin and I last week had maybe the hardest week of our lives. I just felt broken on the inside. I just felt, I literally lay down on my bed, face down for an hour in the middle of the work day. I was working out of the house. And my kids like slowly came into the room and lay on me and Robin prayed over me and the kids prayed over me. And two days before she kind of had the same thing happen to her and by God's grace it happened two days apart so we could minister to each other. But I'm not saying, you know, I'm whistling Dixie through this. It's been hard in a lot of ways for all of us, right? And life is hard. But because God, we know that we know that we know that because of the cross and through the cross, he has he has broken the seal on his plan for all things. And, un, and Jesus says he is worthy to break the seal and open the book of God's plan for all things. And say, because of my cross and my resurrection, I will bring good out of evil. I w- and here's how it's going to end. Because we know this. Because we know that God is sovereign and he's good. And he works his best stuff through hardship and suffering and evil. I was with my discipleship group, my anchor group this morning. We were talking about that very thing from Romans 5. Through suffering, God produces endurance and character and hope, which does not disappoint because the Spirit is poured out into our hearts through the love of Jesus Christ, right? We can take heart and relax. We can. I'm not saying there's not work to do, but be not anxious, little children, It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He cares so much more about you than that flower right there. That is, if you look at it closely, amazingly arrayed. More than Solomon in all of his robes, in all of his get up. And Jesus knew that because he'd seen Solomon. He was there when Solomon was praying to him in 1 Kings 8. Jesus was there. Jesus knew how Solomon was dressed. And he looked at the flower and he said, better That sucker is here today and gone tomorrow. How much more does God care for you than a flower or a bird? He's numbered your hairs. He laid his life down for you. He cares about you and he's in control. Um, And Nathaniel didn't read this part because they didn't have him read this part. But in Revelation 21, the next verse after he stopped, Revelation 21, 5, Jesus says... um, Behold, I am making all things new. The first things, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The first things have passed. So what else can we take away from the way that the scripture's in? We can take away this fact, is that when, he, when, when we reach sort of the, the end of this book and, and, and he makes all things new, and sin goes bye-bye and evil goes bye-bye and no more locks on the doors and we're with him face-to-face and creation is remade and we're restored completely. The process that's, begin, that's happening in us now is finished. He calls all of human history from that point all the way back before that since the very beginning, since God started creation, the first things. It's a warm-up. It's the It's the appetizer. Uh, it's the, it's the uh, what are the things called before a movie? Previews. It's the previews. Uh, it, C.S. Lewis kills it 
in, in, in uh, the last battle, the last of his seven Narniad books, right, where he says, uh, the, all of human history will be like the cover and the title page to the greatest story ever written, uh, of which each page is better than, than the one before it. Okay, it just gets better and better and better and better. And it's not going to be harps on a cloud. That's Gary Larson, not the scriptures. Augustine said, no good thing will not remain. You won't have to say bye-bye to any good thing here. You don't have to try to hang on to it. It's a pointer to him and to what's coming. You're going to have it in spades in Christ. It's a real remade creation. Glass of wine, sunset, good friends, at a table, hiking, ruling, reigning, adventuring, exploring. Yes, real responsibilities, real work, no curse, no tears, no cancer, no saying goodbye to the ones we love. How good is that? The other thing, and I'm not going to go into it now because of time, but the second thing is, so the first thing is he's choreographed all this. We can take heart and relax. The second thing is Christ is reigning now. Not just are we given the picture of the fact that he's going to reign supremely one day, but as I've sort of been arguing over the past few weeks, in Revelation 20, if you look at that text, I'm just going to say this one thing, it seems to me pretty clear. It's not, some people think that the millennium's coming in the future. I'm an amillennialist, which means that I think there's good evidence in the text and also in the whole Bible, not just, this is the only time the millennium's mentioned, this one chapter. Am I going to put all my weight on this? I'm going to make sure that this, my reading of this syncs with the whole rest of Scripture. It seems like the millennium's called, it's the thousand year reign of Christ. Thousand numbers are oftentimes very symbolic in the book of John. A thousand can mean a really, 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 really long time. Okay? And what, during those thousand years, during that long reign of Christ, what is happening? Satan isn't vanquished yet. He's released after that. But he is no longer, he's limited. He's no longer able to deceive the nations. Think about 2,000 years ago. Even the Jews, God's own people, were deceived. Darkness reigned supreme. The light of the world stepped into total darkness. Even his own people crucified him. There was no nation on earth that was not deceived. Think about now, 2,000 years later. As much evil and darkness as there is, think about all the light that is spreading at a rapid pace. The gospel has never grown as quickly. The kingdom has never grown as, as pervasively as it has in the past century or two. It is expanding and expanding um, and I can't think of a nation, I'm sure they exist, but in 20 years, God willing, they won't, that is deceived. A whole nation that is deceived. The light of the gospel is penetrating, penetrating, penetrating. Psalm 110, again, and I'll move on to the next point. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. I think it's the most quoted Old Testament scripture. It's the one that the New Testament authors decide this maybe best applies to Jesus and what he's doing now. And what is it? It's a picture of his reign. Sit here, the father says to his son, while I make of your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Philippians 2, Christ him, you've gone to hell, you went to the cross, you defeated death, therefore rise up, past your resurrection, up to my throne, be seated, you're in power, you have all authority, you vanquished the enemy, you're reigning. You're reigning through the economy of the cross, which is my next point. Just as you conquered through laying your life down, so will your followers conquer through laying their lives down, through laying their rights down, through not having to win the argument. It can be that small. What do I have to prove? I know who I am in Christ. I can concede. I can literally lay my life down. That's what I'm called to do, right? 
Um, Jesus is reigning and his kingdom is going forward through the economy of the cross. Richard Baucom, in a, in a theology of Revelation, says this. He says, Revelation is seen to offer not an esoteric and encoded forecast of historical events, which is kind of the way we read it down in these parts, but rather a theocentric, that means a God-centered vision of the coming of God's universal kingdom. He goes on, Revelation calls on Christians to confront, get this, this is really apropos, calls on Christians to confront the political idolatries of the time and to participate in God's purpose of gathering all the nations into his kingdom. Like I said, until he returns, point three, the kingdom economy is the economy of the cross. Conquest is, is had in this way, just as he conquered by laying our lives down. He's already secured for us everything that needs secured, right? We know who we are. We know where we're headed. His kingdom comes as we lay down our rights. Um, people will come to Christ as they see us suffer well. We were not probably going to argue them into the kingdom, okay? Um, because the cross is at the center um, of this remade world, of the scriptures and of the tree at the center of, of this new Jerusalem, we can stop resisting evil and fighting for our rights. We gain through loss, pain, suffering, abuse, and rejection. Bauckham again says this, when the slaughtered lamb, listen to this, and I'm almost done. When the slaughtered lamb is seen in the midst of the divine throne, um, he's talking about Revelation chapter 5, in heaven, the meaning is that Christ's sacrificial death, listen, Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. He doesn't squish us like ants. He calls us to lay our lives down following our king. Um, Christ's suffering, witness, and sacrificial death are in fact the key event in God's conquest of evil and establishment of his kingdom on earth. Um, the cross alone will heal the nations. This is our message of hope. This is our trumpet blast. Um, this is what we have to share. We're calling people to this king and to follow him. And finally and fourthly, um, William Dumbrell, he gave the more theological lectures in 1983, and he writes this briefly, we see Jesus reigning as a pledge of a renewed world. The fact that the Bible begins and ends the way it does means that um, my and our personal redemption is folded into a much larger reality, the remaking of all things. Everything that we do in Christ matters. Everything matters if we do it by faith in Jesus. Um, he's preparing him for himself, not just to reign, but to be deeply and everlastingly satisfied in human relationship and with him, to have those deepest longings met forever. Um, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for a chance to just walk through your scriptures very briefly. Your word given to us that leads us to your word in the flesh given to us, your precious son, um, and to look at your kingdom and what it means and how it's coming and how it's here and how it comes through our suffering and how you're reigning and how we are reigning with you no matter what's going on here no matter how we feel and how one day you're going to finish what you started we thank you for your perfect choreography of all things even through evil and sin and our rebellion we thank you that we know that that we know that that we know that at the epicenter of that reality which is the cross the ultimate train wreck we crucified your son. We killed him. That's how much we hated you in our flesh. And you used that to open up a door through death into life to save us. Uh, he became the fall guy. So we bless you, Lord. I pray that you would 
continue to make us into a people who lay our lives down and who um, take your, your command seriously to go and make disciples, knowing that you have all authority because of what you've done um, and that we are represented in you and we have nothing to fear. You're never going to leave us or forsake us. So help us to go and make disciples of all nations. We have work to do and we are deeply, deeply loved. Uh, thank you uh, for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Father, thank you for your love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.